0: Chief Justice, may it please the court.
1: I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to a brand new season of SCOTUS 101.
2: Welcome. And can you believe it's already fall?
1: Yeah, it's it's already a brand new SCOTUS term. I mean, like, I, I get it. It's 2020. Time is a square circle. The spring was both a lifetime ago and basically yesterday and also probably will be tomorrow. Uh, but here we are. Uh, brand new SCOTUS term. Let's do this.
2: Well, obviously, the biggest news uh, is the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away on September 18th from cancer-related complications. We'd be remiss if we didn't begin with a tribute to her long career on the bench.
1: GC, I would like to just take a few minutes and express a little bit of the applause uh, that has been on my heart for Justice Ginsburg's life and career. Like many thousands of people, I spent a long time waiting in a socially distanced line, in a dress, on a weeknight, during a pandemic in order to pay my respects to Justice Ginsburg as she lay in repose on the steps of the Supreme Court. Now, there are certainly those who might find this a bit shocking. After all, I often vehemently disagreed with her and her judicial philosophy. But, and I hope this has been readily apparent, I have also always had a deep respect and admiration for Justice Ginsburg. Despite all of the differences between our respective views of the law, Justice Ginsburg and women like her not only paved the way before me as a woman attorney, but they sometimes cut down trees and blasted through mountains to clear a path that didn't otherwise exist. Where law schools actively recruited me, Justice Ginsburg would have a dean look her square in the eyes and question to her face whether her spot should not have gone to a man instead. Where I know my career wouldn't be in jeopardy should I start a family, Justice Ginsburg hid her pregnancy until her tenure was assured. She was denied clerkships because of her gender. She was paid less than her male colleagues. Both the law and society treated her as less than because she was a woman. Throughout her life, Justice Ginsburg had the courage to take them on, to change them. And I and millions of others have benefited immensely because of it. Now, I am fully aware that Justice Ginsburg was not the first woman Supreme Court justice. That was the late Sandra Day O'Connor. And yet, in many respects, Justice O'Connor was before my time. She retired from the bench when I was still in grade school. And while I certainly grew to admire her as well, she was not the enduring cultural icon who stood prominent before me as a woman pursuing a career in the law. Rather, that was always Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It was Ruth Bader Ginsburg on coffee mugs, on t-shirts, on internet memes. She was everywhere, and she was there on the nation's highest courts. And I want to be clear, it was never a matter of, oh, well, RBG can be successful in the law, and so I can be successful too. No, it, it was more than that. Because of Justice Ginsburg and many women like her, it simply never occurred to me that I couldn't. She was a Supreme Court justice and there was nothing I could not also be. Her dissents were in my casebook and there was no one with whom I could not also dissent. She was friends with Justice Scalia and there was no one with whom I could not also be friends. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, very fittingly, became the first woman to lie in state at the Capitol. It is a remarkable testament to a remarkable human being who served as a remarkable reminder that no one can tell me what I cannot be. And I will always be grateful for that.
2: That's a beautiful tribute, Amy. Each departing justice and new arrival makes big changes on the court. And it's always sad when that transition is kicked off by a death of a justice.
1: But John Carlo, <laughs> for us, as for the court, The term and the show must go on. So, what exactly is going on this term?
2: Well, we are at the beginning of a very busy season and a very busy episode just catching up on what has happened in the last week. So I'll give you a highlight of some of the major cases. We'll be talking a lot about these uh, as we get to oral arguments and we get to opinions, but just to give a highlight of, of some of the hot issues that the court is facing this term. Uh, we've got Torres versus Madrid. That case uh, raises the question of whether an unsuccessful attempt to detain a suspect by use of force is a seizure within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment or whether f- the physical force has to be successful uh, in achieving detainment. Borden versus United States. Uh, again, we always have an Armed Career Criminal Act case, and this term's no exception. The question this time is whether or not the now very familiar to most people use of force provision applies to crimes with a mens rea requirement of mere recklessness. Uh, We've got the Affordable Care Act is back before the uh, court, whether uh, the Affordable Care Act's mandate is constitutional after Congress removed the tax provision that gave it teeth, and if not, whether that provision is severable. We have a case Fulton versus Philadelphia, the question being whether a government violates the First Amendment Uh, By conditioning a religious agency here, Catholic Social Services, uh, participation in the foster care system on taking actions and making statements that contradict its religious beliefs. Another case, uh, Jones versus Mississippi, whether the Eighth Amendment requires a judge at sentencing to find that a juvenile is permanently incorrigible before imposing a life sentence without parole. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's the same issue the court was going to decide last term in the case involving Lee Boyd. Malvo, the D.C. sniper, until that case was dropped when Virginia changed its sentencing law. And we have another fight uh, uh, coming out of the impeachment proceedings, DOJ versus House Judiciary Committee. And the question there is whether an impeachment trial is a judicial proceeding for the purposes of Rule 6E of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, such that a district court can release those grand jury materials uh, to the House Judiciary Committee.
1: Well, thank you, Giancarlo. That was just a high-level overview of some of the exciting cases we'll be covering in more detail this term. Uh, But before we get into that, let's review some of the rules for telephonic oral arguments. Because again, remember, since the start of the pandemic, they have not been meeting in the court itself. This has all been done over the phone. The way this has been working is that each advocate It gets sort of a couple minutes to do their respective opening statements, if you will. Uh, And then the court goes uh, justice by justice, beginning with the chief justice and working its way down in terms of seniority, uh, giving each justice uh, several minutes of questions, uh, one-on-one with the advocate. So far, the court uh, has continued with these telephonic oral arguments, and they seem to be going off with no more than the average number of hitches you'd expect for a production like Supreme Court oral arguments. The chief uh, does seem to be keeping a much tighter grip on time with each justice being strictly limited to his or her time slot. Uh, This does seem to be something that's getting better as they go along. Advocates are still nowhere near a consensus about whether this system is good, uh, though it is certainly different uh, but I remain resolute, and John Carlo, I think you remain resolute as well. That this has indeed been a good thing. Uh, it's a civil system. It lets each justice really get into the issues he or she cares about. It allows advocates more fulsome engagement with the issues, and and the most important part, it gets Justice Thomas involved and in asking questions, and that is excellent. That is good for the entire nation. Justice Thomas asked questions. That's the end of the case. This is a good system.
2: On September 29th, the court came back from its summer vacation and held its long conference and issued a deluge of orders on Monday following that conference. So we'll hit uh, just a couple of the highlights. Two really noteworthy orders. First, the court mostly stayed a lower court order that had blocked a South Carolina law requiring absentee ballots to be accompanied by a witness's signature. The lower courts had concluded that in light of the pandemic, that law interfered with the right to vote. The court permitted unsigned ballots to be counted as long as they were cast before the stay and within two days of the court's order. Uh, Only Kavanaugh wrote an opinion explaining any reasoning, and he said that the court was correct to permit this law to remain in effect because the political branches are much better suited than the federal courts to oversee elections and to balance the interests of voting security and concerns stemming from the pandemic. What's more, he noted that the court has a historical practice of not altering election rules on the eve of an election. Second, the court declined to hear a case brought by Kim Davis, the Kentucky clerk who refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. She was sued, and she claimed qualified immunity, but the Sixth Circuit denied her claim. Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Alito, concurred, but they wrote separately to say that the case implicates but doesn't squarely raise important questions about the scope of the court's Obergefell decision which, if you remember, found the right to same-sex marriage in the 14th Amendment. He noted that if the states had been allowed to work out the issue themselves, they could have accommodated people of faith who believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. But, and I'll quote from his opinion, by choosing to privilege a novel constitutional right over the religious liberty interests explicitly protected in the First Amendment, and by doing so undemocratically, the court has created a problem that only it can fix. Until then, Obergefell will continue to have ruinous consequences for religious liberty.
1: The justices also began oral arguments this week. They heard oral argument in six cases. And one of them in particular, I think, is just so fascinating that GC, we have to talk about it. So this case is Carney v. Adams, uh, and it involves two unique and pretty longstanding provisions of the Delaware Constitution. So the first clause, known as the bare majority provision, limits the number of judges affiliated with any one political party to a bare majority on the state's highest courts. The second provision, known as the major party provision, says that the other seats are reserved for judges affiliated with the, quote, other major political party. Uh, So effectively, on on these courts uh, under the Constitution, if you have, uh, let's say there are nine justices, if you have five of them, are Democrats, the other four must be Republicans. Or if you have five that are Republicans, the other four must be Democrats. So what we have here is a petitioner named John Adams, by the way, who is a registered political independent, making a First Amendment freedom of association claim, essentially saying, look, the state constitution prohibits me as a political independent from ever becoming a state judge. And it's because of my political association. I'm not a Democrat or a Republican, so I can't get onto the court. Uh, But there are also two other issues at play here. The first is one of standing. Apparently, Mr. Adams was a registered Democrat until eight days before he filed the lawsuit. And he never actually applied for a judicial position as a registered independent. And So the state has, for all intents and purposes, uh, alleged that Mr. Adams really wasn't interested in becoming a judge. He wanted to resolve a law review hypothetical uh, about freedom of association claims. The second issue at play is one of severability. If the major political party provision is unconstitutional, can it be severed from the bare majority provision? In other words, can the state limit one party to a bare majority without excluding political independence from the minority Uh, The Third Circuit looked at this and said, Delaware, your major political party provision is super cool, very laudable, but it violates the First Amendment. It also held that the provisions weren't severable, so the major party provision was taking the bare majority provision down with it. Now, listening to oral arguments, it seemed to me that you have a number of justices who were skeptical about the state's argument uh, regarding Adams not having standing. See, Justice Breyer at one point quipping uh, something to the effect of, do we have to start holding hearings to find out if he's sincere or not about really wanting to become a judge? Uh, Justice Kagan, I believe it was either Justice Gorsuch or Justice Kavanaugh, both brought up. Look, why should he have to apply for a position to have standing? He can't apply because he isn't a member of a major party and he doesn't meet the constitutional qualifications. Uh, There also seemed to be a bit of concern about the implications of striking down the bare majority provision. Um, So in other words, finding that they aren't severable. Justice Alito, for example, brought up whether, you know, if they did this, they'd also have to strike down appointments. If a governor said he'd never appoint someone from the opposite party, uh, because that would seem to do the same thing, saying, Yeah, you can't be a judge in this state uh, simply because I'm not going to appoint you if you're not from my party.
2: Let's move on to the Supreme Court's consideration of Google versus Oracle. That was the other big case argued this week. The question is whether software interfaces are copyrightable, and if so, was Google's use of Oracle software interface fair use? The question that the court really wrestled with at oral argument is what is a software interface? Now, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but to put it in an oversimplified way, Software interfaces are snippets of code that are used to perform routine functions within software. One of the best simple explanations I found is that these little pieces of code help software programs talk with and interact with one another. So Google copied these interfaces from Oracle's Java software into its Android operating system so that when Android-based software interacts with Java, Uh, Google doesn't have to create its own new language for these programs to communicate with each other. So the issue boils down to whether these snippets of code are ideas and thus not copyrightable, or whether they're expression and thus copyrightable. At oral argument, the court spent a lot of time trying to wrestle with what metaphor really encapsulates what these snippets of code are and how they work. Justice Breyer hit on one that seemed to resonate, which was an analogy to the QWERTY keyboard. Now that the QWERTY keyboard refers to Q-W-E-R-T-Y, which appears on the standard English language keyboards. And he said that Oracle's position amounted to letting the inventor of the QWERTY keyboard claim copyright protection over all computers. Justice Kagan analogized to the periodic table of elements. She said that these software interfaces are like a system used to organize concepts. But that system, that organization, is not itself copyrightable. Other justices, like Chief Justice Roberts, seemed to favor Oracle's position. He thought that the fact that everyone has used these snippets reveals that they have value and that Oracle should be rewarded for that value. Google argued that this sort of code needs to be free from protection or it'll stifle innovation. Developers, it said, will have to spend time and money duplicating these interfaces whenever they come up with new software. Oracle countered that it needs to be copyrightable to incentivize innovation after all these lines of code have value and it shouldn't be stolen. It's worth noting, as Justice Kavanaugh did, that the Federal Circuit ruled in Oracle's favor in 2014, and Google's concerns about stifled innovation don't seem to have come to pass.
1: Well, ladies and gentlemen, there is white smoke from the chimneys of the White House. Habemus Procus, we have a nominee. President Trump has officially nominated Judge Amy Coney Barrett of the Seventh Circuit to fill the seat of the late Justice Ginsburg. But the question remains, John Carlo, will we have a confirmation?
2: Joining us today to help answer that question is our own colleague, Tom Gipping. Tom is the deputy director of the Mies Center. He also runs the Heritage Foundation's Judicial Appointment Tracker. Before coming to Heritage, he spent 15 years working for Senator Hatch, including as a number of years as the chief counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee. He is nationally regarded as an expert in the federal judiciary, especially in the confirmation process. Senator Hatch once said that Tom knows everything there is to know about nominations. And in Amy and my time working with Tom, we've concluded that if Senator Hatch aired, it was on the side of understatement. So Tom, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you very much, I'm I'm excited to be here with the two of you now helming the project.
1: Tom, it, it's great to have you with us. And so we, we gave you a little bit of an introduction, uh, but uh, we clearly couldn't cover everything with it. So could you just give us and our audience a little bit more background on both your personal experiences with the confirmation process and also your work here at Heritage with respect to judicial nominations?
0: Sure. The first uh, Supreme Court nomination that I worked on was Justice Antonin Scalia in 1986. I was a law student working for him. Uh, He was on the Court of Appeals at the time and suddenly we found that he was nominated to replace Associate Justice William Rehnquist. So, uh, that was the last, I would say, normal confirmation of a Supreme Court justice. It was a two-day hearing, he was unanimously confirmed. Uh, And then Republicans lost the Senate that year, and Judge Bork was nominated the next, defeated, and the process has changed ever since. From the, I worked at a different think tank before going to the Senate, uh, and that was during the period when Justice Ginsburg was appointed. So we'd analyzed uh, her, nomination, and Justice Stephen Breyer's. And then I joined Senator Hatch's staff in 2003 and worked with him on the Judiciary Committee for the next five Supreme Court confirmations, uh, Roberts, Alito, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Gorsuch. Uh, And then since joining uh, the Heritage Foundation, continued that work in Studying the confirmation process, trying to explain how it works to the public, keeping track of how it works. We've created the Judicial Appointment Tracker to keep track of the process for lower court nominations, especially. Yeah, so it's been very interesting to both participate kind of uh, from the inside, from the Senate side, and then uh, uh, from the kind of the grassroots side here at Heritage.
1: Tom, so you, you talked about how you think you went through one, quote, unquote, normal confirmation process and then there was uh, Judge Bork's confirmation process. Um, can you explain a little bit more what do you mean uh, in terms of the differences between a, a normal confirmation process and sort of how that process has changed over the years?
0: Well I don't want to suggest that um, that there's that every confirmation process for any judge, let alone a Supreme Court nominee, You know, is exactly the same as any other. I I say normal simply because the tradition, uh, with a few exceptions, but the tradition had been uh, for the Senate to evaluate a president's nominee's qualifications. There wasn't necessarily a big ideological fight, it wasn't that the Senate was trying to kind of hijack the president's power to make appointments. The process worked largely the way the founders of our country designed it, which is the president has the authority to appoint judges and the Senate's role is to be a check on that just to make sure that he's not appointing uh, crooks or people who aren't qualified. Um, in 1985, this is after President Reagan was re-elected, uh, Harvard Law professor Lawrence Tribe wrote a, a little short book called God Save This Honorable Court, where he outlined a very different role for the Senate to play. It was a much more political role. It was basically, he argued the Senate should only approve judges who the the Senate thought would rule the way they wanted, uh, not simply those that were qualified. And uh, after after the Democrats took the Senate in the 1986 election, they used that new kind of political blueprint to uh, torpedo the Bork nomination. And uh, it's been in that frame uh, ever since where uh, Democrats, particularly in the Senate, have employed a very political results-oriented approach and it's been much less reflective of how the, the founders designed the process to work.
2: Tom, can you tell us a little bit about how the framers did design the process to work?
0: Well, it, 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 as I said, the, first you start with the text of the Constitution, and it it gives the president and the Senate uh, clear jobs to do. the The president's job is to nominate, uh, but his job of appointing requires approval by the Senate. But you know, both of those nominating and appointing uh, are in Article Two of the Constitution, which outlines the president's powers. You don't find any. Uh, mention of the process in Article 1. And I think that that suggests the balance that the founders uh, really thought. Uh, They they described uh, the Senate's role as largely a silent operation, which would um, prevent the appointment of what they called unfit characters. I like the way they, you know, the language that they used. And in their view, it would take unusual and um, significant reasons to oppose a nominee. And that made the balance the way it should be. The president gets to a point. Uh, the Senate weeds out a few of the, the really unfit ones. Otherwise, uh, it, the process, and, and that's the way the process worked for over 200 years, uh, with very, very few exceptions. Uh, the Heritage Foundation published a paper I did couple months ago, documenting this, that the norms of the confirmation process were very consistent uh, until President Trump got elected. So that's their design. But as the courts have gotten more political, uh, judicial appointments have gotten more political. And unfortunately, that's the trend that we've been on for some time.
2: And tell me about the history of hearings. This is a relatively new development.
0: Well, people who have watched a confirmation hearing. Justice Brett Kavanaugh's was the last one that we had. They might think that that that's always the way it's been done. Uh, But the first Judiciary Committee hearing on a Supreme Court nomination was in 1916. And even after that, about a dozen Supreme Court nominees were confirmed without any hearing at all. uh, And several others, the Judiciary Committee held a hearing, but the nominee didn't even attend. Uh, It's only been since uh, the late fifties that the practice we see today of nominees appearing before the committee and answering questions has become the pattern. Uh, But even then, I think justice Byron White, who was appointed by president John F. Kennedy, I think he was only asked about eight questions in his hearing and uh, confirmed within a day of that hearing unanimously. So, um, what we see today in terms of this huge uh, conflict and sparring, you know, parties back and forth, almost like celebrity death match or something—that uh, that is a very recent development, and it is inconsistent with the way America's founders designed the judiciary and designed the process for appointing judges. So, what
2: changed in the fifties that uh, the first hearing happened?
0: Well, I, I don't know if it was a, um, a specific event that changed. Uh, and certainly, a lot of things were changing in the country as we were heading into that period. I think Congress was becoming more active in different ways, um, but but you know, but even then, again, uh, these were only marginal changes. Early '60s. A um, nominee would appear, but it would be a very short, perfunctory hearing where they didn't even really ask substantive questions. Uh, you, you get into, it's really not until I think William Rehnquist's uh, nomination to be associate justice in 1971, where there was a, a really significant um, confirmation fight over a, a, a nominee who was confirmed. Um, President Lyndon Johnson nominated Abe Fortas to be chief justice in 1968, and that resulted in um, uh, hearings that were contentious, and he uh, actually was filibustered and withdrawn by President Johnson. So it is a, a recent development. I think it's a very kind of a political development, and frankly, the more politics is associated with the judicial branch, the less free we are going to be.
1: Speaking of the hearing process, Tom, certainly there has been a lot of talk this month about 2016 and the confirmation and hearing process that wasn't for Merrick Garland. What are we hearing from both sides about the 2016 vacancy versus the current vacancy? And importantly, what is the actual historical context we should know when sort of going through all of these various claims?
0: Well, first of all, it's it's important to point out there is no specific uh, way that the Senate should conduct the confirmation process. It, as we were just discussing, uh, there were many years where it didn't conduct hearings at all. The, there's a Congressional Research Service report uh, about Supreme Court nominees who were not confirmed, and it, it lists at least a dozen different ways that those nominees were handled by the Senate many different circumstances. The Senate chooses for itself how to handle a particular nomination under the circumstances that exist. In 2016, of course, that was a presidential election year. Different parties controlled the two steps of the appointment process. You had a Democratic president and a Republican Senate. Uh, Justice Scalia passed away unexpectedly on February 16th, 2016. And it was one week later, very soon thereafter, the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee uh, wrote a letter to them, to Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and they said, uh, this is a period of divided government. We think the best way to handle this uh, vacancy uh, is to fill it after the next president uh, is inaugurated in 2017. And what's important to point out there is that because President Obama was in his second term, the 2016 election was certain to provide us with a new president. So those were the two political factors, divided government and the certainty of, an, of electing a new president, uh, that Republicans relied on to say, um, we think this vacancy ought to be filled after the political uh, season is over with. Now, in doing so they they weren't alone in 1992 which was another poli- uh, presidential election year with divided government that at that time you had a republican president president george h w bush and a democratic senate well the, the judiciary committee chairman who was joe biden at the time he gave a very long senate floor speech in june of, of 1992 and he said again citing divided government. He said, if a Supreme Court vacancy opens up this year, he says, I recommend the president not make any nomination. And if he does, the Senate Judiciary Committee should not consider that nomination until after the election season is over. So taking that course in 2016 what was following exactly the recommendation that had been made in a similar set of circumstances, you know, prior to that. And, and of course, If you wanted President Obama to fill the Scalia vacancy, you thought that was terrible. But I don't think it was an unreasonable position to take. And I remember I was Senator Orrin Hatch's chief counsel at the time. We went to great lengths to explain repeatedly why that decision had been made and what those factors were that supported that decision. Of course, today, uh, we don't have divided government. And the election, Uh, this is the end of President Trump's first term. So uh, it's possible that the incumbent uh, will continue to be the president. So the two main political circumstances that led the Republicans in 2016 to take the course they did do not exist today. And again, if if you don't want President Trump to fill the vacancy, you know, you're not going to be persuaded by that. But again, I don't think it's an unreasonable position to say that different situations warrant uh, different approaches.
2: So Tom, cutting through all that, the sound and the fury, do you think that Democrats have the tools to actually delay the timeline that McConnell has put out?
0: Well, the, the I will say they do not have uh, the means to block uh, the confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett that tool would have been the filibuster. And the filibuster is simply the the requirement in Senate rules that ending debate on a bill or a nomination requires 60 votes. So if you have 41, 42, 43 votes against a nominee, that's not enough to defeat them on the merits, but it would be enough to prevent ending debate so you could still get your way. Well, between the Democrats in 2013 and Republicans in 2017, um the, the number of votes needed to end debate is now the same as the number of votes for confirmation, a simple majority. So there's no longer the ability to use Senate rules simply to block confirmation. The only thing that's left uh, are some small things uh, which Democrats could do to either slow the process or assert themselves in some way. Um, there's many different reasons why why Democrats would take, or Republicans if the if the roles are reversed, why they would take certain actions. In other words, just because they won't be able to block the nomination entirely doesn't mean that there's not other reasons for them to do some things. But those are just small delaying tactics which are, aren't going to be effective. They're really not going to delay the nomination. The votes are there to Hold hearings and to approve this nominee. And I think she will be another a justice on the Supreme Court by Election Day. Some of the things that Democrats are threatening are things, you know, things like impeachment, I suppose, or something. Those are things which um, I think are just kind of wild uh, threats, but they're not even the kinds of things that would prevent Judge Barrett from becoming Justice Barrett. I mean, th- those are long-term processes, as we know from recent experience. Um, and so they, would, they wouldn't uh, prevent her from getting on the Supreme Court in the first place. So uh, I think the only effect of those tactics would be to further uh, destroy any potential of cooperation in the process going forward.
2: What do you make of some Democrats' um, threat or, or consideration um, to simply boycott the hearing?
0: Well, th- you know, if I were still on the Judiciary Committee staff, I would say, boy, I hope they do. You know, you, you don't need a quorum to hold a hearing, so it's not that de- Democrats' presence is required to hold the hearing. Uh, uh, to me, that would be the most obvious thing they could do. That they're just treating this. Process uh, in a cavalier and disrespectful fashion. Uh, There's nothing to be gained, I don't believe, by uh, simply taking your marbles and going home. I mean, not even participating in this part of the process. So there's talk, uh, but they're not going to boycott it. Uh, There's only been a couple times in the last few years with lower court nominations where, you know, hardly anyone was paying attention, and Democrats sort of stomped out, but. Um, I think they're going to want the limelight. They're going to want the media presence. Uh, there's no judicial confirmation process that gets more media attention than a Supreme Court nomination. So I think they're going to want that, and they're going to want to uh, to speak to the issues that they think are important. But they're they're um, if they if they do want to boycott, you know, I'll uh, I'll call them a cab. <laughs> And what do you
2: make uh, finally on this topic of the threats to, um, I, I guess, punish Republicans after the nomination with um, abolishing the filibuster and packing the court?
0: Well, uh, as as you know, uh, you know, packing the court is not a new idea. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt tried it in the 1930s, and his own Democrats rejected it because it would just destroy the independence of the of the judiciary. Um, you know, there's, it, it, it's a cliche right now, um, democratic senators, you know, tweet it, they just sort of toss it out as a soundbite. but it would be a, a very involved uh, process that would require changing the very nature of the Senate as a legislative body, because the number of justices on the Supreme Court is set by legislation And so you'd you'd have to change not only the judiciary as an institution by completely destroying its independence, you'd have to change Congress as a legislative institution in order to make that happen. And the ripple effects of this would go, of course, far beyond um, anything that we're talking about today, and it would ripple for for decades and generations. So, um, you know, I guess if you looked up the word overkill, Uh, in the dictionary, you'd find this as an example, because it would be an atomic bomb response to something that, you know, maybe requires a firecracker.
1: Pivoting a little bit, Tom, right now we've got an eight justice court that just began its 2020 term. Uh, They've started up oral arguments this week. How does this eight justice court How does this lack of a ninth justice uh, affect the court? And and also, what might we expect uh, in terms of, you know, if Judge Barrett is confirmed and and sort of winds up joining the court halfway through this term?
0: I think, uh, again, as a historical note, the Supreme Court has been at less than its full complement of nine justices, Uh, a number of times, including periods of of several months or up to a year. So this would not be completely unprecedented for the court. And the court's function and sort of the the process that it uses to evaluate appeals that come in, deciding which cases to consider and how to consider them, uh, that doesn't change. Um, I think the, the thing that does change is for the period that it's without a ninth justice, or at least cases that are decided during that period, you know, a 5-4 decision might turn out instead to be a 4-4 decision. And then since um, that's not a majority, the, the lower court decision that they are reviewing uh, would be left alone. Um, that, But that's, that's very rare. And you, you'd mentioned if Judge Barrett joins the court Uh, after it has started, you know, what happens then? Well, um, as long as cases aren't decided, even if a justice has not participated in an oral argument, that's only one small piece of how the court considers cases. And a justice can listen to the um, audio recording of an oral argument or read the written transcript of an argument. That argument only takes an hour. uh, And it takes the Supreme Court sometimes three, four, five months to decide a case, so um, a justice who joins after the court's term begins can easily get up to speed. Uh, and, and I would note, you know, Judge Barrett serves on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. You know, unless in, in, in only about three years, she's participated in 600 cases and written over 100 opinions. I think she knows uh, how to be busy and productive on an appellate court. So obviously, it's best to have nine all the time because that's the full, that's full employment for the Supreme Court, but it's done it before with less. It knows how to do it. Uh, and there are uh, ways to really minimize the impact that that has on the court's cases.
2: Tom, there's one thing I wanted to follow up with. Earlier on in the interview, you said that the more political the Supreme Court gets, the less free will be. Can you unpack that?
0: Well, the, the founders designed our system of government. This is a republic in which the people govern themselves. Um, they set rules for government in order to limit government, and they set those rules primarily through a written constitution. Um, the, it, the, the constitution is law that governs government, and, and I think that's a practical way to think about it. Um, The Supreme Court said back in 1795, they asked, what is the Constitution? And they said, you know, it it contains the permanent will of the people and can only be altered by the authority that made it. So if the people set rules for government through the Constitution, well, judges are part of the government the judicial branch is as much part of the government that's got to obey those rules as the legislative or executive branch well if the if the judiciary controls what the constitution means the judiciary controls the rule book and it, you know whether it's you know an employee manual at heritage i mean if you and i uh, and amy you know could could determine what the employment handbook means um, we could pretty much do whatever we wanted. Of course, we never would, obviously, for the record. But if, uh, if, if the rules mean whatever those who the rules apply to want them to mean, then they don't mean anything at all. So if our freedom depends on limiting government, and we do that by, uh, through the Constitution, well, the more the judiciary controls the rules, the less free we're going to be and we're going to, you know, one of the founders, James Wilson described our system of government as saying, you know, here the people are masters of the government. Well, if, if the judiciary controls the rule book, government will be masters of the people. Tom,
2: final question for you. As we go, as we approach the confirmation process and we, we get into these hearings, what should people be looking out for and paying attention to in
0: particular? Well, despite the personal attacks that, that we've already started seeing against Amy Coney Barrett, um, this confirmation process about her nomination is really not about her. The, these confirmation conflicts are about two very different views of how powerful the judiciary should be. So at, if you watch the hearing, and I and I do encourage people to watch it because it's you know, the the only opportunity, really, people will have to pay this much attention, I think, to the judiciary. Uh, As you watch that hearing and you hear senators ask questions, for example, I, I fully expect senators to press her on her personal religious views, just like they did in her hearing in 2017. Ask yourself why those things matter when someone is going to become a judge. She's not been, you know, she's not applied to be a Sunday school teacher. Uh, she's been nominated to be a judge. Well, why do her personal religious views matter to senators who are uh, considering her nomination? And it is reflective of how those senators view the courts. If you believe that judges make decisions based on their personal views, you're going to want to know what those personal views are. But if you don't, if you believe judges make decisions based on the law, then you're going to explore how committed the nominee is Uh, to keeping her personal views out of her uh, decision-making. So I encourage people to listen uh, for those exchanges and those questions and ask yourself, which of these two competing ideas about the judiciary is in play and which do you think is appropriate?
1: Well, Tom, thank you so, so much again for joining us and for sharing your insight and your expertise into the confirmation process. I know I've certainly learned a lot, Uh, GCA. I I know you've certainly learned a lot uh, from from Tom as well uh, over the years. And so thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to having you back in the future.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Well, I don't know about you, John Carlo, but every time Tom opens his mouth, the knowledge just gets instilled into my brain. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful that he agreed to, to join us and to uh, give us the rundown on the confirmation process.
2: Absolutely. Well, keeping in the confirmation theme, I have some confirmation theme trivia with which I hope to stump you, Amy.
1: Oh, geez. Okay. All right. I'm here for it. Let's do this. All right.
2: Question number one. Who was the first Supreme Court nominee to have a public confirmation hearing?
1: John Carlo, I'm going to get smoked at this. Uh, can I can I have a hint, please?
2: Uh, yes. This, wa- this confirmation hearing happened just over 100 years ago.
1: Over 100 years ago. So we're looking at... Roughly 1920. Yeah, John Carler, I honestly don't know.
2: No worries. It was Justice Louis Brandeis.
1: Brandeis, okay.
2: Yes, he did not, in fact, attend his own hearing, but that was very common at the time. You didn't attend your own hearings. So, Who was, move on to number two, the first Supreme Court justice to attend and take questions at his public confirmation
1: hearing? Uh, So this would have had to be after Brandeis. Correct. Uh, Could it have been Harlan Stone?
2: No, it was not. It was Felix Frankfurter. So Frankfurter okay. was attacked for a variety of reasons. He was foreign-born. If he took the bench, there would be no justices from west of the Mississippi. He was suspected of being a communist infiltrator. And, of course, he was Jewish, so anti-Semitism reared its ugly head. So his allies said, you got to show up to these hearings and defend yourself. And he did uh, and uh, made it through. All right, ready for question number three, Amy?
1: Let, let's do this. I'm, I'm blanking so far, so let's let's see if we can get something going here.
2: Okay. The confirmation of this justice, who hailed from the same state as Justice Gorsuch, was remarkable for its smoothness. He was confirmed very shortly after his 90-minute confirmation hearing by a mere voice vote. Uh,
1: did I get a year on this?
2: Uh, I did not give you one.
1: From the same state as Gorsuch the, the same state where Gorsuch was born or yes okay uh so I believe that's Colorado hmm. who was from Colorado um, I don't I don't know who was from Colorado I I got the state uh if, if I don't have the year, I, I'm blanking. I, I don't know who is from Colorado.
2: Well, I'll give you another hint. This justice is our favorite NFL star turned Supreme Court judge.
1: Ah, oh, oh, that was the hint I needed. Um, that would be Byron Whizzer White.
2: Correct. During his confirmation hearing, Justice Gorsuch talked about the confirmation process of Byron White. And he said, there's a great deal about this process that I regret. I regret putting my family through this. When Byron White sat here, it was 90 minutes. He was through this body in two weeks, and he smoked cigarettes while he gave his testimony. So turning to our last question, Amy, are you ready?
1: All right, let's do this. Let's see if I can get a two for four.
2: All right, following up on Byron White smoking cigarettes while he gave testimony, this Supreme Court nominee was the last who was able to smoke during his confirmation testimony.
1: So... I hope the answer is Justice Antonin Scalia, because I know he brought out a pipe during You are absolutely
2: right. In fact, his pipe was the only thing about him that Senator Howell Heflin of Alabama cared to talk to him about. When it was his turn to ask Scalia questions, Heflin said, it may well be that someday you may have to rule in the right of privacy as to whether or not an individual can smoke a pipe in his study or in his bedroom. So I hope you take care of us smokers one of these days. I have no further questions.
1: Well, folks, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to SCOTUS 101. Thank you for joining us for a brand new season. And be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please, 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 if you love us, leave us a five-star rating.
2: You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows.
1: Case is submitted.
0: You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Amy Suera and Giancarlo Canaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.